Have you had a good grumble lately about something? Yep, I have. I do a little bit of it from time to time. What have you had a grumble about? Surf's been flat for a month. Um, did your car break down? Did they both break down? Um, you're sick of your boss? <laughs> sick of being mistreated? Are you exhausted by the body that you're in? You know, have you been sick? Has it taken ages to get better? Have you tried to go on a holiday recently and the thing just went up the wrong way? That's happened to me recently. Actually, I've heard a few of you went on a holiday sick the whole time. It's really hard not to grumble. Hard not to have your hopes in things like that and have them go to seed. When we grumble, and I want you to think about how you grumble, um, we often feel justified. Um, but I tell you what, when you come to Exodus chapter 16, it's going to cause you to think again about your grumbling or your whinging. Um, there's, there's a whopping big warning, really, for us in this chapter. Um, and it's a warning that gets us thinking about this, that behind grumbling... Often there's something lurking in the shadow and it's something dark and kind of insidious. Behind grumbling is very often accusation and even accusation at God. That's pretty huge, isn't it? Even more than that, I think in line with that, grumbling can be a sign that you are actually losing your faith. And, and I say that because there's evidence of that here with God's people as they grumble. God's going to teach his people, Israel, a really big lesson, a big loving lesson um, in the midst of their grumbling. And it's a lesson that's not just for them. It's a lesson that's for us, for every generation of followers of God. So will you come tonight and try and learn this lesson with God's people from the past um, will you deal with the hardship and challenge of having God come for us in this way? Some of you know all about Exodus. You've, you've read your Bible a million times and you know the story. Some of you are really new to Christianity and others are kind of new to Anchor. And, and, and we're diving in in this new series halfway through the book of Exodus. That is because we did the first half of Exodus this time last year. So we're jumping back in kind of mid-event or mid-story. So for those of you who come to this a bit cold, let me just give you a quick bit of backstory for Exodus. God's people have been living as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And in this book, what's just happened prior to these chapters is that God in his power has miraculously come and rescued his people from slavery in the kind of way that you don't see in history. God's people, and there's about a million of them at this point, men, women, children, about a million of them are released from being slaves in Egypt. They've been under hard, forced labour. God's people are the ones who were slaving away and building the pyramids and the temples and everything to bring riches and power for Egypt. And God's heard their cry and he's come for them and he's come to rescue his people. And that's what was seen in the first 15 chapters of Exodus. God miraculously coming to rescue his people. 
Woven in through the story is imagery about God's people being his son, his firstborn son. That's the imagery you actually get through the book of Exodus. Israel is God's firstborn son. The Exodus, the saving of them out of slavery, is like the birth of God's son. And now these wandering in the wilderness for 40 years is like the raising and the upbringing of God's son, his people. And God's got some lessons for them to learn in the desert. He's got some shaping and some growing for them to do. And it's not going to come through good times. It's going to come through the heat of the desert. But God intends to shape and grow his people and particularly bring them up from a young age. And what we see in the book of Exodus is a patient, loving God who takes his people by the hand to lead them and teach them and care for them and discipline them. He's going to take them to the mountain where they're going to meant to be having a festival of worship to God. It's an interesting one. We'll get there in a, as the chapters go on. Ultimately, after 40 years, God's going to take them to the promised land, which is, which is the intention is they would arrive there having learned their lessons and particularly learned how to honour and obey God and so that they can live for him there in the promised land and be for all the nations, a place where you can come to know Yahweh and, and a place that's a light to all the nations. And so this is the journey God's got his people on. But we pick it up in this moment where they hit the desert and they get their first big lesson and it's a lesson about what's going on behind grumbling and and what needs to happen for you. So there's trouble in the wilderness, really, here in the beginning of chapter 16, as you would kind of expect. You know, you've got a, a large group of people, about a million of them, and now they're in the desert. Have you ever been in the desert? There's not much food and there's not much water. It's kind of a scary place to be. Let's just read those first few verses of chapter 16 together. Pick it up in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out of this desert to, oh, sorry. Oh yeah, but you have brought us out of this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. There you go. There's the context. There's what's happening among God's people. When you read it like that, you kind of uh, get a sense of the angst that they're in. The whole assembly, all the people are grumbling. They're all upset. They're all having a good old whinge, a good old adult tantrum. And on some level, you can kind of think, well, fair enough. Pretty hard in the desert. Yeah. This is like next level hunger and thirst that they're beginning to experience. It would be scary. You've got your whole family out there. You've been brought into a place where you feel very vulnerable and so vulnerable that they're at a place where they're convinced they're actually about to die. It's man versus wild in the desert and they're scared and now they're turning on their leaders. 
Um, and it gets pretty deep and heavy when you look at the words that they use, don't it? It's, it, it, it? At first glance, you can kind of think, oh, yeah, fair enough, having a little grumble, that would be hard. But when you look at their language, you see there's something deep going on, something big going on behind their grumble. Um, what they say there is that they would prefer to die in Egypt. Did you catch that last bit? Like, we would rather die back there than die out here. So, you know, we're going to die. It would be better back there. That's what they're saying. That's pretty huge. Well, why would they rather die back there? Well, they say, well, we had pots of meat. Right? Pots of meat. And maybe it's just the familiarity of Egypt. We'd rather die where somewhere familiar. It's interesting that they've so quickly forgotten the hardship of being slaves in Egypt. It's like they're looking back with rose-coloured glasses and they're thinking, ah, pots of meat and onions and things like that. But they, they were crying out to God to be rescued in Egypt. They've forgotten their hardship almost immediately. Then they've quickly forgotten also, it appears, the power of God to rescue them from that. Like, they've just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. God's just parted the ocean, done a miraculous thing. And it's almost like they've forgotten about his ability so that immediately they think, oh, well, we're going to die now. They're not, even, they're not even entertaining the fact that God could miraculously provide for them and care for them the way he's just miraculously rescued them. It's almost like spiritual amnesia. They just keep forgetting how good God is and how powerful he is. And they turn on their leaders, Moses and Aaron, and they accuse them. It's, it's almost like they're saying, we'd prefer not to be saved. We'd prefer slavery. And by the way, this can be the very real experience for a Christian, particularly a new Christian, when you come across the hardship of coming to God and you realise, oh, it's, there's still challenges here. There can be this desire to go back. You know, this is what they're saying. They're saying we, um, what we've been saved into feels worse than that. Yeah? It's real. And they say to Moses and Aaron, you guys are evil, basically. That's what they say. You've brought us out here to kill us. Like, that's what they're accusing Aaron and Moses of. So behind this grumble, which you might start off by thinking, oh, yeah, fair enough, is actually an accusation against God's anointed leaders over them, that those leaders are evil and actually just brought them out here like some cruel joke so that they die in the desert. Now, it's actually even worse than that. You see, they're not just even accusing the leaders of being evil. Look at how Moses responds to their grumbling through Aaron. Look at verse 8 there. And the last sentence or two of verse 8, so the second half of verse 8, where it says, who are we? Have you got that there? This is Moses responding to the grumbling. He says, who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So here's what's really going on for them, Moses says. You're not only just trying to accuse us and grumble against us, you are ultimately angry at God. You are ultimately accusing him. You're grumbling at him. That's huge when you turn on God. And that's what's happening for them here. The, the God's people have found themselves in a place where they're actually failing to trust and believe that God is still powerful or that God is good at all. And they're deciding instead to turn against him and accuse him of being evil and accuse him of wanting harm for them. 
This is huge. Behind their grumbling is accusation against God and a turning away from God, which is why I said earlier, we need to think long and hard about grumbling because behind grumbling, it, it, it can be a sign that you're actually losing your faith. Do you think it's possible that the same issues may very well lurk behind your grumbling? I mean, we admitted before that we all have a little grumble. Sometimes our grumbling's bigger. Do you think that this could be lurking behind your grumbling as well? Accusation against God. such that your grumbles are not just an innocent little whinge or a little expression of a hardship, but actually dangerously developing something in you that's turning you away from God, a development of something that's causing you to drift towards distrust, a development that actually makes you accuse God. What's your grumble at the moment? Is it a health grumble? Are you sure that what's lying behind your health grumble is not um, an accusation that God is actually not powerful or able to heal you or help you? Have you got like a um, finance grumble where the wheels are falling off and you're panicking and the security that you used to have is just not there anymore? Are you sure that behind your financial grumbling is not this accusation that really God is not looking after you Any? He's not able to provide for you and he actually even doesn't even see what's going on for you. Have you got like family pain grumble or relationship awkwardness grumble? Are you sure that behind that grumble it's not an accusation that really you think God just hates you and, and he wants harm for you? And you might hear that and think, well, what am I meant to do, Tim, when these hardships come for me? And I find myself in the heat of the desert and everything's falling away and things are getting really hard. Like, what, what am I meant to do with the pain in my life if I can't grumble? Then you guys thinking that? What do I do with the pain? Am I just meant to ignore it and pretend it's not there? Are Christians meant to be people that just skip around and pretend nothing bad ever happens and just ignore the pain when it's really there? No, no, no. In your pain... Bring it to God. But there's a big difference between bringing your pain to God in the form of a request that's got trust and gratitude built into it. There's a big difference between bringing your request to God with trust and grumbling and accusing him of failing you and failing to be powerful, failing to be loving, failing to be good. Huge difference. So don't ignore your pain. Oh, bring it to God, but be very careful how you bring it to God. Bring it with trust. Yeah. Bring it with gratitude. Bring it. To, God can handle all your pain. He knows your pain. He's able to sit in your pain with you like no one else in your life can. He's able to travel with you and, and bring real healing inside and help you like no one else can. Oh, bring your pain to God. He knows all about pain, by the way. He's got us for his people, all right? God knows all about pain. He sent his son. He's able to handle your pain. Bring it to him, but careful how you bring it. And, and, and examine yourself. Watch yourself. 
listen to the words that come out of your mouth. And I don't, I don't pretend for this to be an easy exercise at all, but try to examine the attitude of your heart when you're grumbling. Like, what's really going on for you? And try to notice the grumbling and the accusation. And if you can be brave enough and humble enough to notice it and acknowledge it, then take action. Then do something about it to help you stop grumbling. Like, so what's the antidote to grumbling? If you spot it in yourself, and if you're honest and humble enough, you ought to be able to spot a bit of this. When you spot it, What's the antidote? How do you stop grumbling? Some of you have turned it into a bit of an art form. You're really good at latching on to negative things and you talk about them all the time. Others of you don't have that problem. But what's the antidote? How do you move away from grumbling if you acknowledge that it's a thing and you don't want to be accusing God anymore? Well, I've got two things for you from the passage. First thing, if you're writing notes, be teachable in present hardship. Be teachable, there's the first one. Second thing, Look back and remember what God has done in the past. So be teachable in the present and be good at looking back and seeing and remembering what God has done and his goodness in the past. Those two things. And hopefully those two things are going to be key parts of what's going to help us step away from grumbling. Part of the lesson that God's teaching his people here and needs to teach us as well. So be teachable. It's the first one. Um, Learn lessons in the desert. Um, the heat of the desert, the heat of hardship really is the classroom of God to teach you lessons. And this is what God is doing. He's teaching his people Israel like a loving parent. Read verses four and five with me and have a look at how God's going to teach his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see where they will follow my instructions. You can underline that word, test them, if you want. Because later on in the New Testament, when it looks back at this concept of testing, really what God is doing is teaching and training his people. He's trying to grow them up. That's the substance behind the test. It's to teach. He's going to teach them by giving them this rhythm to sit in each day. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other day. So here's the, here's the context of the lesson um, that God's going to teach them about himself in. Um, he's going to provide for them every day. You, you read through the details of this, and some of you are familiar with these details. What God's going to do for his people in the desert is he's going to provide water, but each day he's going to provide bread and meat every day. But he wants to teach them to trust that he's going to provide for them each new day. And so there's a command here to wake up in the morning and collect the bread, but only collect enough bread for one day. And if you collect more than that, which they do, it's going to be full of maggots the next morning when you wake up. The tendency for God's people and the tendency for us is to actually collect more and store up so we put our security in our possessions. And God's saying, no, no, I'm going to teach you a lesson where each new day I want you to learn that I am your provider. I'm enough. 
I will give you what you need. And so each day they, they go out on the desert floor and there's this flaky stuff that they haven't seen before, but it's a new type of bread. It's a special type of bread. They end up calling it manna. And it's described in verse 31 as like coriander seeds, which apparently grind into something white. Is that right? I don't know. Coriander seed, kind of like wafer things, and they're sweet. Anyway, sounds pretty awesome, whatever it is. I'm not sure you and I have eaten anything like manna, but God gave his people the best kind of bread every morning and they were to collect it just enough for that day. Yep, an omer per person, whatever an omer is. I'm sure you can figure that one out. But just enough bread for that day. And then in the evening, what would happen is quail would come and land on the ground too. And quail are the kind of birds that are easy to catch. You ever tried to catch a chicken or something else? Most birds are hard to catch. Quail apparently, well, they're just there and... They don't go fast. You can just pick them up. Yeah? You know, kick them around. You can pick them up, you can pluck them, you put them in the pot, and you meet every night. Have you ever eaten quail? Sorry if you're a vegetarian. Um, they're actually beautiful little things, and you get their little legs. And anyway, <laughs> each day God gave them bread, miraculously provided bread and meat each day. Um, And the idea was only gather enough. I want you to trust that I'll provide again for you tomorrow. This is the test. This is the training. It's a daily lesson. I'm going to keep you in this perpetual state of dependence on me because this is what you need to learn, that I am the Lord and I am your Lord and I will look after you. And he's going to teach them every day. Now, of course, they struggle, don't they, to... um, uh, learn this lesson, you know, when they first start doing it, of course, they collect too much and it turns to maggots that night. They still learn how to trust him. And 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 then on the seventh day, sorry, I didn't get to that instruction, did I? They, they're meant to collect each day just for that day, except the sixth day where you collect double, because on the seventh day, God wants them to rest. Now, again, this is a radical concept for people who have been living in slavery for 400 years. Never heard of the concept of rest. Never heard of the concept of a day off. They've been working every day under the yoke of slavery. And then God's going, no, 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 you're my people. I've got something beautiful for you. I've got rest. So one day a week, no work. Just trust. Collect enough two days in advance. That's what I'm going to get you to do and that stuff will survive. And when you get up on the seventh day, no work. Now, of course, they get up on the seventh day and they go out to collect because it's what they've been doing for 400 years or however long they've been living. It's just what we do. They don't know what it means to rest. What a beautiful thing God gives his people. What a, I mean, we, we turn it into a weekend and then we turn it into long weekends and we want, we want months and months of rest, so we kind of take it a long way. But um, this concept of a day off is, is radical in the ancient world and it's part of God's beautiful grace for his people to have a rest. But you know what the thing that stops you resting is, is fear that you're not going to have enough if you don't work again on the Sabbath. So he's wanting to teach them to trust him and put your tools down. Trust me, I'm able to provide for you. And God wants to learn them, them to learn this lesson over and over again. I'm your Lord. I'm able to look after you. That's for them. How does daily bread or daily meat um, apply for us? When Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, when he gives us the disciples' prayer, most people call it the Lord's Prayer, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven and on earth. 
The first three requests we're to make are in regards to God's name and his glory and his power and his kingdom. But the first request in regards to us is give us today our daily bread. That's an interesting request until you understand this story because the concept of daily bread takes us back to this moment where God provided bread daily for his people. And Jesus says, this is how I want you to ask for provision as well. Bring your requests to God, but bring them in this sense of daily bread, which is to say, Lord, would you provide for me, but just enough for today? Would you provide for me, but not too much that I'd be tempted to store it up and put my trust in it? Just enough for today that I would live aware of my dependence on you every day, which is the truth of your scenario. It's the truth of your life. You are actually daily, hourly, minutely dependent on God to keep you alive. And the minute God decides that you won't be alive anymore or remove the provision of all the things he gives us, you won't be alive anymore. You're only here tonight because God enabled you to be here and alive. That's the truth. And God wants us to actually be aware of our dependence on him. We would far prefer, wouldn't we, to consider ourselves to be independent and autonomous and powerful. And I tell you what, living in the developed Western world, we can earn so much money that we really easy slip into this concept that, no, no, I provide for myself. I look after myself. And there's power that comes from the provision that I've got, that I earned for myself. And God's like, no, no, no. Here's the prayer I want you to pray, modern Christians. Pray for daily bread which kind of sounds nice, but it's actually a prayer um, asking God to help you learn to trust him in the hardship and discomfort of pain and to trust him each day. To ask for daily bread is almost to expect and anticipate that God will teach me in the classroom of hardship and I want to be ready for it, yeah? So when it comes... When the heat of the desert comes, when the thing that causes you to grumble comes and just anticipate it, yep, when it comes, do you pray and see that God has got lessons for you in that? Are you ready to be taught? Yeah. Maybe right now you're thinking, yeah, Tim, I feel like I'm out in the desert right now. I've got the heat of hardship bearing down on me in one of those areas you talked about or another area that's way worse than that. And you're like, Tim, I'm in the desert right now. It's like God's taken me out there and and you're telling me he wants to teach me lessons out there. I'd prefer just not to be out there. I just want the situation to change. I want the hardship to go. And here's where being a Christian is really tough. We are called to learn the lesson of humbly positioning ourselves before God and saying, okay, well, here's the place that you've allowed me to come or brought me into and I'm going to be open and teachable in the midst of this hardship. I don't want to miss the lesson. I don't want to miss what I need to catch about you, God. I don't want to miss what you want to teach me. I want to grow. I want to trust that you are the Lord and you're my Lord and I'm dependent on you. Can you learn to trust him? in the hardship that you're in right now. God God intends to shape you lovingly as your ultimate parent, that you would grow. Be teachable. Be teachable 
in the present hardship, like right now, you might not be in a hectic one, maybe it's just a minor hardship. Are you teachable in this moment? Don't turn against God in this moment. Don't turn away from him. Be careful not to accuse him of evil or being unable to see the situation you're in and do anything about it or care to do anything about it. Open up to his goodness. Let him come for you. Know his provision for you. Trust that he is enough, enough for you in all ways. Be teachable, humble and teachable in the classroom of hardship. There's the first one. Antidote to grumbling. Be teachable in this hardship that you're in right now or the one you're about to step into tomorrow. Okay? Second thing that's going to be part of the antidote to grumbling and accusing God. The second thing is this. Look back, like get good at being someone who's able to look back and remember the goodness of God to you. Again, some of you are actually really good at this. You're good at recalling. You're you're good at remembering all the ways God's been good. Others of you, maybe not so much. Now, why would I say look back and remember? Well, If you've read this passage this week in your reading guide or if you were in a home group where you looked at this passage, you'll know that as it goes on, there's this funky little thing that God gets them to do. Um, He gets them to collect some of the manna, pop it in a jar. It's called the manna jar, right? And the manna jar goes in the Ark of the Covenant. And it goes in there for a really specific reason and it's for the future generations that they'd be able to see and remember and be told what God has done and trusting God's goodness based on what he's done in the past, not even to them. So can you look back and remember what God has done in the past? Now, look, just read verse 31 and 32 with me. Verse 31, you get the description of the manna, that tasty bread, better than waffles. Verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like white, it was, it was white coriander seed and tasted like wafers, made with honey. That's good stuff, isn't it? I'll have that on my next breakfast birthday morning. Um, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna. Actually, that's the omer. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. There it is. So the future generations can see and the future generations can look back at something that didn't even happen to them, but they can remember what God has done and that will help them to trust in God's character and who he will always be. Do you look back and remember the goodness of God in your life? Have you learned to do that? There was a particular moment in my life where it was important that I needed to learn to do it. And I sat and someone helped me do this and just kind of map out my whole life and go through lots of different details, lots of different contexts. But the point was, can you spot how God has been good to you and kind to you and loving to you through others and through situations? And it was a, it was a really helpful experience for me. I really needed to do it because um, it trained me or helped me 
to look back and see what God has done. Can you do that? Can you easily recall? Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you six things where I see the goodness of God and the provision of God for me over the years. And it takes me right back to when I was first born. Let me tell you. Can you quickly go, oh, Because if you can, if you can quickly recall the goodness of God and the provision of God, that's going to help you in the present all the time when you find yourself thinking, oh, great, this is no good. You're about to go, no, no, hang on. God is good. I can see what he's done in the past. Yeah? Can you do that? I I think one of the easiest things for us to do is to be in the present and the middle of hardship and just forget. You know, like the Israelites do, you just have spiritual amnesia and you just forget what God has done so quickly and you find yourself panicking and grumbling. But can you look back and remember all that God has done to be kind to you, to to shape you, hold you, love you, grow you, bring you to this moment? Sure, there's been hard points and, and moments where, geez, you just wish them out of your life for sure. But can you spot the goodness and the kindness And can you easily recall it and bring it to mind to help you in the present hardship? Yeah? Can you look back and latch on and say, yes, God, you have been good to me. You are good. Yeah? Also, can you look back and remember things that didn't necessarily happen to you but happened before you even existed? Can you look back and see how God has been good to others? I mean, we're looking at one right now, how God provides for the people in the desert the event of manna from heaven. This is awesome. Can you rejoice in how God provides for his people? These are our people, you know, God's people. Can you see how God's related to them and can that cause you to have confidence in him and celebrate his character? But here's the thing. Can you look back and remember the ultimate event where the true and living bread from heaven came? Because that's the big one to recall. That's the big one to latch on to. Do you know what I'm talking about? The true and living bread. What is it? It's Jesus. And I'm not making this up. That's what he calls himself. Can you recall that event? You might not be aware of this. I'll give it to you really briefly. John chapter 6. Jesus is, catch the context, in the desert. Yep. With a whole bunch of followers. And what are they doing? They're hungry. And people are starting to grumble. Yep. Maybe there's a little bit of accusation going on. And Jesus does this profound feeding miracle with bread and fish, but he does it in the desert. We're meant to see the connection. Yep. So much of what Jesus did, you're meant to see the connection and fulfilment in the past. So Jesus feeds thousands of people with, with bread by multiplying this little kid's recess you know, and feeding 5,000 people with the bread. And, and, and then they kind of got the wrong idea initially and started thinking, oh, great, free bread, going to keep following this guy. But Jesus brings a big corrective. He said, no, don't work for food that spoils. Work for food that endures to eternal life. And then he drops a truth bomb on them with some words about himself that you've got to catch and you've got to live with. Jesus describes himself in this way. He says, I am the living bread. Yeah. Catch those words. I am the living bread. In other words, you've heard about this bread in the past that God provided. I'm the real deal. I'm God's ultimate provision for his people. I'm the bread that if you eat this bread, it's not just going to 
get rid of your hunger for a day, he says, no, 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 I'm going to provide something for you that rings on for all eternity. I'm the ultimate provision from God. I'm what you desperately need, which is Jesus kind of saying to them, and he uses some of these words, so what you need to do is eat me. You you need to, and by doing that, by saying that, he's like, you you need to trust me. You need to depend on my body about to be broken and my blood shed for you. You know, this is the bread to eat. This is the thing to trust in. This is the thing to depend on. It's me and my actions on the cross. And if you do that, if you eat this living bread, though you die, you will live again. Yep. Eat the true bread, the living bread, which is to put your trust in Jesus, and you'll get eternal life, which is eternal satisfaction. It's eternal provision. It's what you're longing for deep down and we go hunting for in multiple places. Jesus is like, no, come to me. Believe in my death. Trust in my provision for you. And you, you know what you ultimately need to be provided with beyond finances, beyond relationships, beyond a life that you feel like is fun and good and enjoyable. You know what you, you ultimately need to be provided with? You need your sin dealt with and you need forgiveness. And Jesus is like, this is what, this is me. I come and I take on myself the punishment you deserve for your sin. I I die with it on the cross and, and I take what you deserve and so then I can turn and offer you forgiveness. There's the provision you need more than anything else. We, we feel the need for many other forms of provision, but what you ultimately need is to have your sin dealt with. And Jesus is like, I'm the true bread. I'm the living bread. That's what I've come for. Eat this, you know, believe in this. Yep. And you'll be provided for. Can you look back and remember that one particularly? I know you weren't alive. But can you put your trust in a historical event and the words of a historical man who lived and died and rose again from the dead and said this about himself? That he said, can you look back and remember that? This is going to be the ultimate thing you need to get great at looking back and clinging hold onto as you go through hardships. Because there, friends, in Jesus is the goodness of God. There is the provision of God. So cling to Jesus Trust in God's goodness to you and provision for you in Christ and keep reminding yourself of God's power to defeat sin and rescue you, of God's presence by his Holy Spirit to live in you and change you and shape you and God's goodness in all things to grow you and hold you but ultimately his goodness to you in Christ Jesus, that will hold you for all eternity. I'm going to stop talking and I'll pray in just a minute. But before I do, I'll just give you a moment. Is there something there? Did something stick? Did the penny drop somewhere? Is there some grumbling you need to reflect on? I'll just give you a minute. You might want to write. You might want to pray. Take a moment to think and reflect and then I'll pray. Just as I pray, I'm going to invite the crew up to get ready to lead us in song in just a minute. But um, as they come up, let, let me pray for us. 
Father God, we desperately need your help with this. We see in our words and in our hearts grumbling. And we're kind of shocked to hear that really there's accusation towards you there. Oh, Lord, would you let the horror of that sit on our hearts that we would be prepared to move toward you and do something about moving away from grumbling. But we need your help. Lord, would you humble us and enable us to be teachable in this moment and in every moment of hardship in our life? We want to learn. We want to see you and believe in you. We want to be shaped. We want to grow. Please help us to be humble and teachable. And please, Lord, help us to get better and better at being able to look back and remember your goodness to your people through time, your goodness to us in the details of our lives and ultimately in bringing us to know you. But, Lord, most of all, we see your goodness in Jesus, that you would send him for our sake that you would pay the ultimate price so we could be forgiven and we could be brought back into relationship with you and know your goodness forever. Please, Lord, help us with this. We love you. Please be glorified with what you do by your spirit in our lives. And all the people said...